Well, good evening and welcome to our Gospel Issues seminar uh, live tonight um, on the big question, what does it mean to live in a secular society? And I'm very pleased that Reverend uh, uh, Melvin Tinker has recorded a 40 minute uh, seminar on this uh, topical subject, really excellent talk. And uh, very shortly we'll play that and discuss it afterwards. I'm sorry to report though that Melvin has recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer and um, even sorry as well to report that today, sadly, he's been taken into hospital due to a deterioration of that condition. And so he won't be with us, unfortunately, for a live Q&A afterwards. But I will be joined by Andrea Williams, our chief executive. And so if you're watching live on YouTube or on Facebook, do put your comments and questions in the chat there and we will be able to see that and we'll have a little discussion afterwards. So without further ado, uh, Melvin Tinker, who's also, by the way, done uh, some brilliant previous Gospel Issue talks with us, one on uh, leaving the Church of England, another one on cultural Marxism that um, did really well. Uh, were excellent talks, both of them. So today, what does it mean to live in a secular society? I'll hand over to the video and join you back in 40 minutes time. See you there. Thank you. When you hear the term secular society, what kind of things come to mind? Well, maybe it's a sense that slowly but surely talk and thought of God are being squeezed out of the public arena. Or in the words of Tony Blair's former uh, advisor, Alistair Campbell, we don't do God. Or perhaps it's a term which has become synonymous with godlessness, moral confusion and open hostility towards the Christian faith. Or it could be that when the phrase is mentioned, certain well-known individuals spring to mind which embody for you the zeitgeist. Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris in academia, or maybe Stephen Fry and Daniel Radcliffe in the media. Now, if that is the case, then there will be a tendency for us to see secularism and a secular culture as a threat, which in turn will cause us to adopt a rather defensive posture, feeling that we've not only got to be apologetic for what we believe, but then we become rather defensive and aggressive with others for what they believe or don't believe. Now the upshot is that the secular society becomes a kind of gladiatorial arena involving combat between people of faith on the one hand and unbelievers on the other. But suppose on a closer inspection we begin to see things a little differently with an understanding that secularity is our context here in the West, while embodying those elements of human rebellion and sin, as well as the operation of the principalities and powers, nonetheless seeing it as also providing an opportunity for gospel proclamation and under God's spirit, gospel transformation. Now, it's this possibility I want us to think about as we ask the question, what does it mean to live in a secular society? <clears throat> now, in order to answer that question adequately, we have to get one of our thinking very clear on exactly what we mean by secular society. Now, to do this, we need to get a few definitions carefully tucked under our belt. The first one 
is the term secular, which is derived from the Latin root seculum, meaning the present age. So in some way, the, the focus of the secular is on how we live in the here and now, without much reference to any transcendent realm or life beyond the grave. And this has led to two definitions of secular. First, there's the classic definition, whereby the secular is to be distinguished from the sacred. So here the secular refers to the domestic life, the work of butchers, bakers and candlestick makers. Whereas the sacred refers to the religious sphere occupied by monks and priests and nuns. So we can call this secular one, the sacred secular divide. We then come to secular two, which is a modern understanding with which we're more familiar. Now this sees the need for society to be essentially a-religious, to be an allegedly neutral, religious-free public space. And furthermore, associated with this is secularism, which as a worldview rejects in principle the existence of any transcendent or spiritual dimension, and would seek to restrict, if not entirely remove, the influence of religion from the affairs of society. And this brings us to another important term, secularization, which Osginus defines as the process through which, starting from the centre and moving outwards, successive sectors of society and culture are being freed from the decisive influence of religious ideas and institutions. D.A. Carson brings them all together. He shows how they relate. He says, in more popular parlance, all three words, secular, secularization, and secularism, have to do with the squeezing of the religious to the periphery of life. More precisely, secularization is the process that progressively removes from religion from the public arena and reduces it to the private realm. Secularism is the stance that endorses and promotes such a process. Tied to secular too is, that, is the idea that as cultures experience modernization through technological development, religious belief and participation correspondingly declines. Not only so, but over time, personal piety itself eventually will wither on the vine. So this means that a truly secular society will be a less religious society. And this has come to be known as the secularization thesis. So back in 1968, Peter Berger announced that by the 21st century, religious believers are likely to be found only in small sects, huddled together to resist a worldwide secular culture. So how would this happen? 
Well, one of the main driving forces in the secularizing process is what Max Weber calls rationalization. And this simply means that religious ideas become less and less meaningful and religious traditions become more and more marginal as they are replaced by other modes of thinking and traditions. So with the advance of modernity, it is argued, less space is reserved for God. So if you're ill, what do you do? Well, you call a physician, you don't call a priest. If you want, your, your, you want good crops, you get better fertilizer. You, you don't offer sacrifice to, to appease a, an angry deity. So put very simply, superstitious religious thinking and behaving are replaced with rational, scientific ways of thinking and behaving. Now, one of the major features of this change in picturing the world is what is called disenchantment. That is, the, the sort of magic and the mystery of life is not simply removed, but unwanted. It's no longer the case, in the words of Gerald Manley Hopkins, that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. No, rather, the world is given. It's a product of random natural forces, rather than a gift from a personal creator. But nonetheless, here we are, well into the 21st century, and it's obvious that the prediction of Berger in 1968 simply hasn't materialized. The secularization thesis has to all intents and purposes been discredited. It's simply not the case that as modernization increases, religious belief decreases. Now, one of the obvious stumbling blocks to this thesis, of course, is the United States. Probably the most modernized country in the entire world, we're still one of the largest, uh, one of the most religious countries in the world, with over 40% of the population attending church on a regular basis. But also, if you think about it, if this thesis were correct, you would expect to find that with increased modernization, there would be a decrease in subjective religious belief. Not so. The religious researcher Grace Davy writes, what is clear is that most surveys of religious belief in Northern Europe demonstrate continuing high levels of belief in God and some of the more general tenets of the Christian faith, but rather low levels of church attendance. And it's Grace Davy who coined the phrase believing without belonging to describe those who would hold some form of belief without necessarily being part of an organized faith community. Now, I'm, I'm sure you will have come across this kind of response to the question, are you a religious person? The answer, well, not really, but I do like to think of myself as a spiritual person. So it's not as simple as thinking that the secular society is, is equivalent to a non-religious, godless society. It's a bit more messy than that. 
So let me give you one example to illustrate what I mean. Steve Jobs. Now, in some ways, you, you would expect Steve Jobs to be the poster boy for the success of secularism, the onward and upward march of science and technology, displacing the outmoded religious ways of thinking of the past. After all, he was the icon of Silicon Valley, co-founder of Apple and chairman of Pixar. Now, this is what you would expect if the secularization thesis were correct. But this is what we read in his biography of the scene taken towards the end of his life. One sunny afternoon when he wasn't feeling well, John sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on his death. He talked about his experiences in India almost four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism and his views of reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. Now, just think about that. They're pretty good odds coming from someone like Steve Jobs. 50-50, there may be a God. And so the makeup of our secular society is not so cleared out of religious belief as the ardent secularists would have us believe. So what's going on? Well, in order to make our way to a clear understanding of our situation as a secular society, I want to draw on Charles Taylor's work, The Secular Age, and its popular unpacking by James Smith in his book, How Not to Be Secular. Now, the opening question for Taylor is simply this. How is it that in the West we went from an age around 1500 where it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to an age in 2000 where especially amongst the elite sectors of our society, uh, those of cultural influence, it is virtually impossible to believe in God. Now Taylor suggests it is largely to do with believability. Now in 1500 London, it would have been almost unimaginable that non-belief in God could be a default position. That's what you did. It was much easier to believe than it was not to believe. Today, by and large, it's easier to disbelieve than to believe. So what's changed? Now, Taylor suggests that it is not so much thought-out beliefs, what we call worldviews, such as humanism, Christianity, Buddhism, and so on, which shape how we think about ourselves and our world, but what he calls the social imaginary. And Kevin Van Hooser describes this social imaginary as that nest of background assumptions, often implicit, that lead people to feel things as right or wrong, correct or incorrect. It's another name for the root metaphor that shapes a person's perception of the world, undergirds one's worldview, and funds one's plausibility structure. He goes on. People become secular, not by taking classes in Secularity 101, but simply by participating in a society that no longer refers to God 
the way it used to. God makes only rare appearances in contemporary literature, art and television. Social imaginaries are the metaphors, the stories by which we live, the images and narratives that indirectly indoctrinate us. Let me give you an example of how this works. If we could get in a time machine and go back to the decade between 1965 and 1975 and ask the man or woman in the street to describe marriage, what pictures might they refer to which would capture their idea of marriage? Well, maybe that of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, or Terry and June, or even in the late 70s, Wendy Craig and Geoffrey Palmer in Butterflies. For them, you see, marriage would be a covenant between heterosexual couples, involved in give and take, facing life together, come what may, and on the whole, happy. But now, if you were to Google white heterosexual couples, and I did this, what would you find? First, what comes up is a picture of a white gay, uh, white male gay couple. Then, a picture dealing with the fall in the rate of heterosexual marriages. Then, a picture of an older gay couple extolling that they are healthier and happier than gay singles. And then, a picture of the white supremacist origins of heterosexual marriage. That's what's been put out. The social imaginary of what constitutes marriage has changed almost beyond recognition and is in the process of being forced to change from the previous imaginary of stability, the commitment of a male and female forming the bedrock of society, the place in which children are conceived and nurtured, now portrayed negatively, to the equality if not superiority of gay marriage. And I would suggest that now even as Christians we find it difficult to talk about marriage in a non-qualifying way without gay marriage at least being in the background of our thoughts. And so with this kind of perception, changing perception, to even begin to argue the case for heterosexual marriage as being the only authentic form of marriage, what marriage is, will not only seem implausible, but downright prejudiced and bigoted. Something to be contested. So we're dealing with what is believable. Is it now believable that marriage embraces a partnership between male and female, feel and female and female, and soon multiple partners? And it is becoming unbelievable to see it exclusively as a God-given covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. What can you believe? What can't you believe? Now, marriage is just one example of the radical change in beliefs which has taken place in the West, especially in the last hundred years or so. But we may think of a whole range of other things. Personhood, identity, values, to, from ver uh, virtues to values, sexuality, animal rights, the purpose of education, and so on and so forth. And it's this notion of believability that Taylor suggests is a helpful tool to understand what makes up a secular society. 
Now this leads to, a, uh, to suggest a third understanding of the term secular. We saw secular one as something which is distinguished, distinguishing the sacred from the secular. Secular two is the desire for an a-religious society. But Taylor proposes secular three, one in which beliefs are contested. In 1500, the Christian faith was plausible. You can believe it. The very structure of society reinforced this. Churches, even if attendance was not as high as we sometimes think, lay at the heart of most communities. The priest was one of the few people who could read and write. The yearly calendar was marked by saint days and the holy days. The church spires reached to the sky pointing to the universal belief in the transcendent. And this was further reinforced by Catholic views of, of sacraments, that the material was magical, as it were. Enchantment was everywhere, infusing everything. So while particular doctrines and practices might have been debated, Christianity as a whole was not contested at all. Now that is manifestly not the case today. No one, no one's belief can be taken as axiomatic, self-evident or unquestionable. There is no overarching obvious default belief whereby we can assume that everyone more or less believes what we believe. Now, of course, there are pockets in Western society where you do have these uh, axiomatic uh, default beliefs operating, some of the small towns in the Midwest US, for instance. But what we are immersed in is a society where there is a plurality of beliefs operating which are contested and contestable. Secondly, there's the emergence of what Taylor calls the imminent frame. Let me explain. Now, according to the secularization thesis, our brave new world is to some extent the old world with the God supplement lopped off, a world with the supernatural subtracted. But it's not quite like that. The permission or even the encouragement not to believe in God in our secular culture is a positive project. People are pushing it. It didn't just passively come about. Now, as we've seen, the secular age is not an age of disbelief, but an age of believing otherwise. It's an age of multiple beliefs. That's a secular society. As humans, we can't tolerate living in a world without meaning and significance. The old world of Christendom provided both because of the belief in the transcendent. There's a personal God who creates and sustains the world and has purpose and it's moving towards a goal, the consummation of God's kingdom. Eternity exists, and so it's full of meaning and significance lay beyond this world in the judgment. But if the transcendent is dissolved, together with eternity, this means we've got to create our own meaning and significance in this age, the seculum. We create our own enchantment. Now, some like the atheist Woody Allen are quite open about this. He said, the universe is indifferent, so we create a fake world for ourselves. 
And we exist within the fake world. A world that in fact means nothing at all when you step back. It's meaningless. But it's important that we create some sense of meaning. Because no perceptible meaning exists for anybody. So now you see all meaning and significance are somehow to be crammed within this world alone. Or to use the phrase of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. But if there's no transcendence, you're simply left with the imminent, the here and now. Hence the imminent frame, like we live in a sort of little prison and we can't get out of it. Now let me give you a literal picture which illustrates this. In the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, there's a painting entitled The Vision of St. John by El Greco. It's actually a fragment of a large altarpiece depicting the opening of the fifth seal in the book of Revelation, chapter 6. In an attempt to improve it, the top five, foot, uh, five feet was removed, sometimes in the late 1800s. And so you have St. John with arms stretched heavenward and the persecuted saints looking upward. But to what? What are they looking, what they were looking to has actually been removed. Now that is a picture of what has happened in our secular society. The transcendent and eternity has been removed and yet people are still looking upwards as it were, desiring the enchanted. The problem is there's nothing there according to the modern social imaginary. They have to look around or within themselves to, to create their meaning, you see? That is what it's like living in the imminent frame. Now thirdly, this leads to what Taylor calls exclusive humanism. That is, all we're left with are human beings creating a meaningful life in, in a sort of self-sufficient closed universe. And this shows itself by the social imaginary which is predominant in the West called expressive individualism. With each one of us having his or own way of realising their own humanity and significance. Refusing to conform to any model imposed from the outside, which of course puts the claims of the gospel in its place. So to be sure, from time to time, people might hope for some kind of assistance, lady luck, or even turn to God. But there's no doubt who's in the driving seat. We are. It's exclusively human. The fourth feature of a secular society, according to Taylor, is what he calls cross-pressure. You see, living with this universe without windows, fed with the narrative this is all there is, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, trying to create meaning results in society with, with a, a multiplicity of beliefs, meaning that such beliefs are accompanied by doubt. It works like this. While someone else's belief might look weird, strange, or even despised, then it's fairly easy to remain contented with your own outlook. Your faith isn't going to be undermined by that. But even a pretty well everything else but faith, they're like you. Same interests, same hobbies, watch the same films, listen to the same music, 
wear the same clothes, have similar opinions, then the issue posed by the difference becomes more pressing. Because you think, well, they're so like me in many ways, how can I think my way is best and theirs isn't? Who am I to judge? You feel that kind of pressure. Add to that the tug people still feel of the transcendent, remember Steve Jobs. There must be more to life than meets the eye. That feeling can haunt people. It's what the sociologist Peter Berger calls signals of transcendence. Just as you may pick up a, a weak signal on your car radio which indicates that someone is transmitting a program, you try to tune in, you try to get clarity. So the creation itself, together with life and all its joys and blessings, provoke us, including the non-Christian, to wonder if there's more, if there is something which that John is looking up in that El Greco painting. And the final result is what Taylor calls the Nova effect, an explosion of different beliefs and opinions. And of course, this increases the cross-currents of pressure, leading to more contested beliefs and more people doubting. It's an endless cycle. And so rather than shoring up a person's belief, this pushing and targeting of a plurality of beliefs often leads to doubt. It destabilizes people. Now, of course, we know that insecurity can then lead to some becoming brash and aggressive, trying to drown out or cancel views which they see threatening to their own. Especially the belief that there is a transcendent, that there is the eternal, that there is a God. So let me sum up. <clears throat> the secular society of the West is not the irreligious society predicted by Christianity's culture despisers. It is pluralistic. A variety of faiths and views are on offer, including the faith of secularists and the naturalists contesting and being contested. This has a destabilizing effect. Doubt accompanies beliefs, those of the atheist as well as the Christian. Signals of transcendence are being transmitted. The heavens do declare the glory of God. And that can make life more than a little uncomfortable for some people, causing folk to wonder whether there may in case be 50-50 chance there's a God. And this is what it means to live in a secular society. So let me move on and ask, how should Christians live in this secular society? Let me give a few main headers. There's an old proverb, if you want to know what water is like, don't ask a fish. That is the problem many Christians face in terms of understanding the culture in which they live, move and have their being. When you're so immersed in something, it's difficult to find some vantage point which lies outside by which you can judge it. But of course there is a standpoint outside our culture by which our culture and all cultures can be critiqued and evaluated. It's a word. A word which transcends cultures and which brings the transcendent and the eternal into cultures, leading to personal and cultural transformation. 
is called the gospel. And it is this which sets the imagination free. The higher reality of the triune God at work in his world. John tells us that the word became flesh. That is the one who in the beginning was with God and was God. It was to a ruined, disgraced and rebellious race with a poisoned imagination he came in order to redeem and to restore. And this involved him challenging and destroying the social imaginaries of his day, what the Bible calls idolatries. The gospel not only tells us that we don't live locked up in a, an imminent frame with each individual left to do what he or she thinks is right in his own eyes. No, we live in a transcendent one with eternity in view, ordered by a creator to whom we are accountable. And furthermore, in the sending of the Holy Spirit into minds and hearts, they're renewed. And so we begin to, to live with a new social imaginary, with viewing everything under the lordship and rule of Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything for the Christian is recast in this new light. Kevin Van Hooser poses this challenge to the church. If the church is to fulfill her holy vocation as a holy nation, she must pit this evangelical imagination against its secular counterparts. The church is a people set apart, both in its theological understanding of the whole, the plan of salvation centered in the cross of Christ, and the practices that embody and enact that understanding. For example, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He goes on. There's a difference, for example, between preaching and marketing the gospel. The latter is captive to a secular picture of how to change hearts and minds. The former is committed to the biblical understanding and practice of the ministry of the word and spirit. The world, pictures and stories through which people live have to be challenged and replaced by those of the Bible. Jesus did it in his own day with people locked into their own false social imaginaries who for all their piety tended to have a pagan view of life mainly consisting of what you eat, what you drink, and what you wear, leading to anxiety. And Jesus replaced it with a much bigger picture of God as Father, who out of his infinite fullness of his eternal goodness delights to provide for his children, to look out for every part of their lives under his meticulous care, but always having eternity in view. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. So practically, what does it mean, very briefly? <clears throat> First, we must allow the biblical metaphors, the biblical pictures to govern how we view the world, ourselves, and above all, God and his action in the world. Metaphors govern the way we think and act. Again, just think for a moment of the way we view the church. The truth is more often than not, is that it is the way of the world. 
It sees the church as a voluntary organisation, usually small and unimpressive, lying on the periphery of society, a religious Derby and Joan club. Now we either go along with that and so put up with it, or we go along with it in a different way and we try to change it so it conforms more to the what the world considers to be impressive, the megachurch. In both cases, it's the world's social imaginary we're operating with. We shouldn't. The Bible tells us something different. The church is a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, God's own possession, 1 Peter 2.9. It's not simply the agent of God's mission. It's the goal of God's mission. God placed all things under Jesus' feet, appointed him to be head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1.22. Jonathan Edwards held that the belief that God created the world to procure a spouse for his son. Similarly, Hugh St. Victor centuries early said that both individual souls and the church as a whole were to be prepared as a bridal chamber for Christ. Now, what difference do you think having those pictures in our minds held by faith will have when we meet on a Sunday? As we seek to serve God in each other and face the taunts of the world. We're to see the church and the world as the Spirit sees them, given to us by Scripture. You read the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 1 to 3 to see how the ascended Lord Jesus corrects all the faulty social imaginaries of the churches of his time with the overwhelming reality of his own presence. But secondly, we must enable our people to live out the reality and oppose the false realities they're being bombarded with 24-7. God has given us the means to do this by his spirit. Pastor teachers are not only to expound the word, but also the world, exposing its lies and, uh, against the truth. God has given us the sacraments which not only point to another world, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, but the means whereby God communicates his presence through his audible word in preaching. He also communicates his presence through the visible word in his sacraments. This was the teaching of John Calvin. In prayer, what do we do? Well, we're entering the throne room of heaven now. And by Christians neglecting the prayer meeting, they are, not only living, they, are, they are not living out the truth. Their social imaginary is, is barely different from that of the non-believing neighbours. When personal pleasure takes priority over the hard, delightful work of prayer. Now, some of you may have seen the 1949 Ealing comedy Passport to Pimlico. It's set after the Second World War, a shopkeeper sifting through the rubble of a bombed-out store discovered an ancient document which makes the small London borough of Pimlico a realm of the defunct French Kingdom of Burgundy. And against the background of rationing, the shopkeepers of Pimlico declare themselves to be part of an independent nation, 
and so freeing themselves from government restrictions. And when, of course, the other Londoners hear about this, they arrive in Pimlico in droves. Now, the London authorities are not amused and fence off Pimlico, requiring people to leave or enter with a passport. Now, in some ways, that is what the church is. It's a nation in the midst of another nation, and at the same time set apart with its own vision, its own way of life, its own way of viewing things. Sure, our faith may be contested in the secular society. This is where God has placed us at this point in history. But equally, we can lovingly contest all other faiths and isms which are on offer. Maybe at personal cost, but not simply arguing for the cogency of our faith, but demonstrating by our lives its life-transforming power. Well, uh, that was a great talk uh, from Melvin Tinker there. Really appreciated that. Really helpful, uh, insightful uh, perspective and things. And I'm joined by Andrea Williams. Great to see you, Andrea. And uh, in case you missed it earlier on, unfortunately, Melvin is not well today. Um, he's been taken to the hospital, actually, and um, he was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. So we're very sorry about that and that, and that he's not able to be here today. We're praying for him. Um, but we're live with you now to sort of discuss for a little bit um, that talk. Um, so, Andrea, any first impressions or things that struck you uh, from that today? I think it's useful unpacking terms right at the start there, such as um, secular, secular. Yeah. secularism, uh, secularization. I think that those that that's very useful uh, indeed. And I think as Christians, many of us have allowed ourselves or have uh, to become submitted to these terms um, for many for many decades in the last in the last half of the last century we were i think comfortable to just say this uh, the, the butcher the baker and the candlestick maker what we do at work is secular and i think that certainly in this new in this in this century um we've we've seen the need to reclaim the re reclaim that space saying that all that we do is either pointed uh, towards God is Christian uh, or not. So I think that's one of the things that um, uh, struck me was was Melvin helpfully unpacking those terms and all this. So this idea somehow that secularism is neutral, that it holds a beautiful neutral public square mm. and it's a fair place when in fact, um, as we've come to see and certainly as we see day, day in, day out, in the work of Christian Concern and the Christian Legal Centre, that it's not neutral at all. And then this idea of secularisation, which which is that in the end, um, institutions, public spaces really no, believe that there is no, in a sense, no room for God. I mean, you may have unpacked those terms uh, in your own language, Tim, a little bit more differently than me. Well, not differently, but you may be yeah. applying them or nuancing them in a slightly different way than me. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that struck me, he, he gave this very helpful illustration about marriage, didn't he? And how yeah. you know, the image that people had of marriage not yes. very long ago, not very long ago, really not yes. very long ago, 
um, was obviously heterosexual, you know. Yes. Um, and that, that's obviously what it was. And just recently, and it is like in the space of 10 years, you know, or so, or less than 10 years even, um, it's changed, the, the image of marriage that people have. And of course, you know, what that shows is the teaching influence on culture of the law, doesn't it? Yeah. That, you know, when the law Absolutely. says this is right, suddenly the whole culture very quickly, very, very quickly, suddenly shift to think this is right. Um, and that changes the perception of culture and then changes what's plausible to believe. And it has such a massive effect on the whole culture in terms of the way people think about what is right and what is wrong is very, very influenced by what the law says, isn't it, Andrea? I think it's right. That's right, Tim. But I suppose I, I want to ask a question beyond that. At what point does the law reflect the culture? Yep. So what falls first? Is it the law that makes the culture? Certainly the law can shape culture and restrain culture. Yeah. Um, but I, I, Tim, you'll have heard me say this uh, many times um, yeah. as someone has worked with me for many years now, but as, as a student lawyer in the mid 1980s, if you, um, if anyone had said to me that in law, we would yeah. define marriage as between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, and then go on to say that a family unit is, uh, and all protections to the word family in law are to be applied equally so that a family unit becomes a married or an unmarried man or woman, uh, a sibly partnered man and man, woman and woman, and that all ch and that children in any any way that those families have them so either by fostering adoption, uh, fertility methods, any way that, that, that they have a family is equally protected in law. All of those things, that was to be the way in which we saw family in law. Um, I said it couldn't possibly happen. So that was the, so it's, it's happened in a very short space of time, in, in 30 years. And um, same-sex marriage was legalized back in 2013 was right that 10 years prior to that in 2004 we were having this debate in 2004 about the shift of marriage yeah we were we were so you know so i think that i think that so then at that point the culture was the the public discourse was shifting and of yeah. course the Although, belief, you know, i think that probably, probably believable tim at that point was yeah. the possibility that marriage yep. could be something different. Yep. And that's where the Christian voice began to be diminished. Yeah, and of course, you know, you always keep saying that, that law is downstream of culture, and I think there's something right about that. But also, there wasn't a referendum on marriage, was there, at the time? And I wonder if there had been what it would have turned out. And, um, and then, you know, having then passed the law, and the question really is how much the cultural elite are sort of, you know, spearheading the cultural move. Um, towards this and much more sort of progressive in that sense than the rest of society and that the Brexit vote would indicate that um, as, as would some other votes that we've had around in the last 10 years or so um, that actually the, the mainstream culture isn't as progressive it isn't sort of pushing this whole secular agenda so much as the cultural elites are um, which is another factor. Yeah. Tim um, I, think that's, I think that's true and I think at the time it may well have been true yeah but I think that 10 years on what concerns me is that once things simply become 
normal. Once the law normalizes something, when society gets used to something, then yeah. I wonder what the cultural appetite might be now, for instance, for reversing it. Um, or if there were to be a referendum, yes, or if there would be, were to be a referendum. Well, today. no, now the law has taught the culture and the culture is massively accepting of, of um, same-sex marriage, that's right. Yes, so do you see what I mean? I think that's kind of how it has worked, yeah. um, how it's played and out. That, that's why it's so important to resist and to be active in terms mm. of um, resisting those laws which are are highly secular which do, do not do not which are you know which um which chat which in fact challenge um but mm. you know where where are where beliefs are contested so where the belief that mm. marriage between a man and a woman the idea that that could even be contested mm. let alone approved in law let alone mm. to a position whereby um, you could be punished for believing that in in in, in society. Yeah, that's where we've yeah. got to because in the social. The thing that um, all this reminds me about Andrea is is um, yeah. G.K. Chesterton's quote where he says, "When when people stop believing in God, it's not that they stop believing they don't believe in anything. It's that they, I'm going to get this wrong. It's not that they don't. It's not that they believe in nothing. It's that they believe anything. Right? Get that right. So yeah. when people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe nothing. They believe anything, and you know." The whole sort of transgenderism, it kind of illustrates that for me. You know, we've lost all sense of reality now in society and we're prepared to say that people can just change gender and self-identify in different genders and all of that kind of thing. Um, and it's kind of like a make-believe world that we're living in, whereas the reality that you you get from a Christian worldview that says, hey, these things are real, the world is real, but you know, we're living in a world that is created and therefore we can't just create it ourselves and make it into a make-believe thing. And people talk about the metaverse as well now, all of that. You know, the reality that comes from Christianity actually grounds people's sense of normality and what's reasonable to uh, believe and what's not reasonable to believe. And without that, we lose that and people sort of start believing anything, all sorts of fantasy, kind of crazy things. And this is really at this point where we are in a world that believes in fantasies, that enshrines and approves of things that that are simply untrue and, and often really unkind to keep on progressing and approving of those things which are not true. Mm. That's the society that we're living in and that's mm. a society mm. that is hurting and lost and muddled. Mm. And what is the hope in all of that? Well, when a society is so hurting and so confused as we are, then the hope is in the opposite of secularism. The mm. hope is in the opposite of anti-God. The hope is in a creator God, a God that knows each one of us, a yeah. God that made us male and female, a God um, that sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the, only, the perfect man, the only perfect man to ever have lived, who would then yeah. pay the penalty for our sin. That's, a, an, that's an extraordinary... Yeah. So I can see Bruce Bennett on Facebook here has put a comment, which you will resonate with, Andrea. Um, he says, I tried to preach and challenge some of these secular views in the Church of England as a lay reader and got no platform. The Judeo-Christian culture has been eroded and now we are past the point of recovery. Um, and part of the whole reason why the secular um, agenda, the secularization has succeeded so much is because the church has failed to actually 
preach and, and contend for the gospel and the truth of Christianity, isn't it, Andrea? We have been so concerned to be attracted to the culture that one of the one of the great strengths of the opposition has been to say to believe in Christianity is in fact to to be regressive is to be unkind to be lacking yeah. in compassion when yeah. in fact to proclaim and speak the truth of Christianity is to speak kindness and compassion and life and joy and truth and and hope somehow however we've lost our nerve it's as if, as if we are really ashamed of Jesus and all the truth that flows from him of his words it's as if we have lost our ability to believe in the power of God the gospel which is the righteousness of God to change and transform lives so that people will in fact be able to hear it yeah. and so we expect the church in culture to speak to culture and so one of the great services um, when the contributor there talked about being no platforms as a church warden in the Church of England is that one of the great sadnesses here in the United Kingdom is that we have a state church and people here expect the state church to say what marriage is, but it can't say it. It doesn't say it, but we expect it to. Well, I've just recently had the Church of Wales sort of endorse same sex marriage, haven't you? And this last weekend endorsed the same sex blessing. We've got a Methodist church yeah. that has made a statement on the so-called conversion therapy, um, as has the Church yeah. of England, it's at, in effect wanting to um, wanting to ban uh, ban conversion therapy. You have a situation whereby I yeah. know you can't get access to the Methodist Central Hall um, if yeah. you want to talk about that. I mean, it's just the most extraordinary state, state of affairs yeah. when Methodists are getting shut out of Methodist churches because they believe the Bible. Uh, yeah. when, when Anglicans so, Andrea, I want to move on to um, because they believe the Bible yeah I, I just there's an interesting comment here from NEA since I mentioned the idea of referendums um, uh, she I assume on YouTube says in Romania they had a referendum on family but people didn't care that there were not enough votes so they passed the law anyway now things have shifted so much and so fast it's almost impossible to reverse it so again that's the kind of point makes my point in some ways that the cultural elite you know, were pushing this. When the referendum didn't get the result they want, they pushed it anyway. And then the result causes the population to change their views anyway. Do you see what I mean? So that, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how that's played out in Romania um, yeah. from that comment. Um, but, you know, the, the answer to this, surely... I mean, there was, is... a big, there was a big popular resistance to um, the de redefinition of marriage back in 2012. Oh, yeah, the biggest petition ever, wasn't it? Over 100,000 yes. votes. Um, yes. Um, yeah, but the government actually ignored it. The government ignored it. So the government, yes. and, and I mean, we find this. I mean, it's been the it's been the same around protecting the um, our unborn children. Uh, actually, you know, the law. I mean, there the law has failed to protect our unborn children, but mm. the government rides roughshod uh, over over the law um, in order to mm. make access to abortion during the COVID period much easier. And and then and then they just it just becomes more and more difficult when things become normalised. It becomes more and more difficult to, to reverse them. And I think that at this point, when you get lawlessness, mm. when you live in a secular society, a hardened secular society full of secular uh, with with secularism saying we hold the neutral, we hold the public square, and with secularised institutions, 
what you get is chaos actually you get legal chaos mm. and, and then you get brute force through the law if you don't comply we'll punish you so, we've so got Andrea, lots, how do we yeah. how do we push back on this i can see some people are saying talking here keith williams in particular on youtube do you think it's wise for believers to send their children to public schools because of the secular influence that you get that they get um there um and that's something that's close to your heart isn't it andre the, the sort of um the, yes. the, the children that generation yes well absolutely and i think that the, with regard to our children we know that the law god gives us our children and so as mums and dads we it's our duty they are our gift and we need to raise them in the fear of god so i think we need to take that very seriously and that and also in the church god gives us our children in the church and we need to look after them to raise them of course and we want we want children everywhere to know and love the lord jesus christ mm -hmm. so we need to love and protect them so if the local school is highly secular then as parents as christians we need to think about how we're going to influence that school we need to get into positions of governance within the school in order to seek to influence the culture in the school. Andrea, we know of about um, 15 um, new schools that people are starting or planning this to start. Is a, exactly. I was just going to get to that, Tim, um, really, to say. So to there say is a whole movement. It's quite exciting, really. A whole, a whole new movement, movement of, well, this of new, new, new Christian schools starting because of people realising, I don't want my kid to be infected, or that's not the right word, but um, indoctrinated in this kind of way. Um, that's and, absolute that's and, absolute and it's the whole thing about you know it strikes me about plausibility structure here idea because we've got to have in our churches in our christian communities in our families it should be implausible to believe secularism do you know what i mean because we know so much of god we've seen so much of god at work we've seen so many answers to prayer we've we understand so well the fallacies and and the flaws of secularism and and the implausibility of secularism that it becomes implausible for a whole community to believe that and and they have clear answers and a clear sense of what we believe and what we don't believe around this and why we don't and therefore you know they are able to challenge it and resist it and um and persuade other people to resist it as well and that's kind of part of what needs to happen here but also what um melvin was talking about was expound the word and the world the word and the world um and i think that's also key isn't it you know we need to be good expositors of the word but also um explain to our communities what is happening right. in the world out yeah, there? I love the difference between the preaching and the marketing. We don't market Christianity, we well. live Christianity. Yeah. We yeah. live changed and transformed lives. And in a world that's hurting, that is costly and it's true. And we're going to, we want, because we want to serve the hurting world, hmm. we want to have our churches and our homes open, saying, in here is a place of healing and hope and transformation. This is the message of the gospel not harsh judgment but revelation a place of forgiveness for your sins a place of turnaround a place of justice a place of truth and i think if people you, will look for that you know i think people in the secular world will look to the church schools and see that they're doing well and producing good happy and and you know contented and and morally upright children and we'll want to send them there and you know look to the churches as well and see that they are loving communities as jesus said you know we'll love one another and I think, you know, as we get more and more damaged people by this increasingly sort of um, intolerant secular society, I think the church are going to be the hospitals, aren't they, as well as yes. the schools and as well as, you know, and the, and the counselling centres and the healing centres and the prayer centres and all well, of that. That's, that's what church is, isn't it? That's the thing here at Christian Concern, isn't it, Tim? We yeah. are praying to be part of that 
new movement in here in the United Kingdom and beyond where, where God raises up his people that are here, where we are the hospitals, where we are the education centers, where we are the rescue centers for all those that have been hurt by a hard, secular, broken world that refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ as King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the most beautiful savior, the kindest person that ever lived and also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Great, well, I think we're out of time now, Andrea, but um, that was a great talk. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did uh, from Melbourne. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as well. Do share it with your friends. And, and so much him. love to Melvin, Tim. I mean, he yes. is a man that is showing us how to live meaningfully because he loves his saviour so much, right until the end. Yeah, fantastic. Worth watching his other talks as well, the one on why he left the Church of England and the one on cultural yeah. Marxism as yes. well, which are both on our YouTube channel um, yes. here as well, or Google them and find them. And we're praying for him and his family as well um, at this time, as and so do join us in that as well. So thank you for joining us today. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Um, and uh, do follow us and, and sign up for our emails as well and uh, connect with you again very soon. Thank you.